Well, last week I started off with an illustration of team sports. With individual sports, success or failure is entirely up to you. It's about your performance. But with team sports, it's really about teamwork. You have all these different players filling different roles. They could each be the best at their position, but if they can't work together, they're still going to lose. But teamwork doesn't just naturally happen. I think we know people are inherently selfish. They want the personal glory, the personal fame. They're not willing necessarily to sacrifice for the good of the team. What really gets them there, though, is a coach. Is why teams especially need coaches to work together. Coaches are pretty trivial when it comes to individual sports. But with team sports, they're essential. You know, effective coaching can even make up for inferior skill. In a case in point, the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team, known as the Miracle on Ice, where the U.S. team went on to defeat the, the once thought unbeatable Soviet team. But they didn't win by skill. They won by coaching. Herb Brooks was hired to be the head coach of this team, and he just had mostly college students to work with. This team was a bunch of college players. He admitted they were not going to win on talent alone. They didn't have enough talent to win just by talent. But he brought them together, taught them to work as a team. He trained them. He believed the Soviets always won because other teams just got exhausted by them in the third period and couldn't finish. So he pushed his players. He conditioned them. He directed them. He encouraged them. And they went on to win. The players deserve their fair share of the credit, but they never would have got there without their coach. And just thinking about this, what's the role of coaches What do they do? Well, coaches educate. They're supposed to know more about the sport and pass on all that they know from time and experience. Coaches motivate. They're the ones to push their players to do what they need to do to win, even if they don't want to. Coaches direct. I mean, they're the ones calling the shots and telling the team what to do to win. And coaches correct. They tell their players of their weaknesses and and seek to bring them along to improve. And finally, coaches encourage. Adversity is going to threaten every team, but coaches are the ones to to lift their spirits, keep them pressing on to the goal no matter what happens. Coaching matters and leadership matters. This is true in sports, and just like last week, we're going to find it's it's true in the church. Just as we found all these parallels between team sports and the church, because when you think about it, the Lord really designed the church to function in, in many respects, like a team. So we're going to find some parallels with the necessity of coaching. You know, those in the church likewise need someone gifted to educate, motivate, direct, correct, and encourage them in the faith. They need someone to keep them working together toward the same mission no no matter what. Leadership matters, and it matters in the church above all, because in the church we're dealing with eternal stakes For a couple weeks, we've been reflecting on the necessity of of every believer in the church as kind of like a member of the team. Everyone's been gifted by the Lord Jesus and and made to contribute to the mission of the church. And so everyone has to do their part. They have to work together. But again, that that doesn't happen automatically or, or naturally. It often takes a coach, a leader to equip the saints and then enable them to function together, to all serve with their gifting, and work as one. And this, too, is the Lord's design to provide such leadership to the church. The Apostle Paul knew this. 
He understood the Lord had given him the role, you might say, kind of like head coach of the church. And granted, Paul did not build the church alone. As we've been learning, the church was not built alone. But at the same time, without the, the effective leadership of the Apostle Paul and other leaders, the church's effectiveness would have been greatly diminished. You know, Paul labored to see the church work together as a team and su- succeed in its mission. And today, we in the church really need the same coaching. We, too, need to be educated, directed, corrected, motivated, encouraged in the ways of the Lord. Thankfully, the greatest coaches, the apostles, they left behind their, their coaches' notes, you might say, that the inspired scriptures with which the Lord would use to direct all the churches in every age. And it's the writings of the apostles and prophets who, who laid the foundation of the church. They provide us today all that we need for life and godliness. And so pastors today are, are to pick up these notes and study them and use them in, in their own coaching of their local church. Because the game's not over, it's played out in every generation until the Lord returns. But it's in the scriptures that we have all that we need. Now, you might not guess it, but these thoughts of the value of coaching in the church and and the scriptures, is kind of like our inspired playbook. These thoughts come to us this morning in the least likely of places, and that's in the final verses of the book of Colossians. And that's where we are today. So one last time, at least for our purposes, you can open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. And we come to the, the very end, the final verses, 15 through 18. You know, we've been in Colossians longer than expected, in large part due to COVID delays. But hey, no complaining here. It's been a profitable time nonetheless. And now though we, we finally come to the very end, you know, back in chapter 6, or rather verse 4 of Verse 6 of chapter 4, Paul finished the body of this letter. He, he finished telling them everything he wanted to tell them directly. Then down to verses 7 through 14, he moves into this long farewell greeting section where he's just saying farewell greetings to a ton of people. Rattles off a long list of fellow workers who will either be visiting the Colossian church or who sent along their greetings. And so for the past two weeks, we've been looking behind the curtain of these otherwise mundane verses and finding they're actually quite colorful and helpful. You know, the characters and circumstances behind these greetings provide the church today with many valuable lessons. And chiefly, we've learned that the church is like a team, and to thrive, everyone has to do their part. It requires the contribution of each member. The church did not rest on Paul's shoulders alone. And he had a team around him, and apart from that team, he would have had no impact. The church would not have thrived. Every member is essential. And really, the the church today, every member is part of this team, Christ's team. And we're all striving together toward the same goal, the same mission, and everyone must contribute. Now, though, we come to verses 15 through 18. Paul is done writing, but he's not really done. He's not done to the last word. But not surprisingly, we find no meaningless statements here. There's no trivial platitudes. Even to the very end of the letter, Paul is coaching the team. He's like this quintessential pastor slash coach. And he's still giving direction and correction and encouragement and exhortation to the the last word of this letter. And so what you find here is 
is another lesson by way of reflection, namely that, that coaching matters, you might say. We've learned that that teamwork in the church matters. But now I want us to reflect on the role of the coach or the leader. Paul is he's functioning kind of like a coach. He's giving the, a final set of instructions to the church. And so this morning we're going to peruse these instructions and see how they relate today. And all the while reflecting on, on the continued role of, of pastors slash coaches in the church today. So let's begin first with, with this in verse 15. The coach endears. The coach endears. He says in verse 15, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. Now, we've seen for a long time, so far, Paul has just been passing along greetings from several fellow workers, people who couldn't visit the Colossian church. Why is he doing this? Because all these people who are there with him, they, they really cared about these Colossian Christians, and they wanted them to be encouraged by the fact that they're thinking of them, they're praying for them. You know, today you might be talking to someone, and, and in conversation, the name of a mutual friend comes up. And the other person might say to you, like, oh, hey, I know him. And next time you see him, say hi for me. And chances are, though, you never will. You're not going to do it. And the other person doesn't really care. If he did, he would just pick up the phone and say hi himself. It's just one of those empty things we say today, right? Like, say hi for me. You never really actually mean it. It's like, why don't you say hi for yourself? You've got a phone. We just don't do it. But in the ancient world, they did not have a phone. It's extremely difficult to communicate with people over long distances. And so when all these people who are around Paul in Rome in prison, when they hear he's writing a letter to the Colossian Christians, they really want to say, like, say hi for us, and, and they mean it. We don't get the sense that these are trivial greetings, but they really wanted to communicate love and, and care for these other believers. Now here in verse 15, Paul himself is doing the same thing. He's sending his own greetings to the church. Now, he already greeted the Colossians back in chapter 1. And he added, ever since he heard of their faith, he's not ceased praying for them. I mean, just think about that. He's not even met these people, but he, he's, he's greeting them. He's, he's telling them, truthfully, he's been praying for them because he wanted to endear himself to them. He, he genuinely cared. You see here in verse 15, though, he's adding a greeting to the brethren in Laodicea. Now, Colossae was a city in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Ten miles to the west, you had two other major towns in this little valley, Laodicea and Hierapolis. And Colossae used to be the greatest of these towns in Greek times, but there's a major highway that was rerouted from Colossae to Laodicea, and so Colossae kind of declined, Laodicea rose. This explains, by the way, in Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus is giving a message to the seven churches of Asia Minor. The last church on his list is not the church of Colossae, although it's right next door. It's the church of Laodicea. But Paul did not write this letter to the Laodiceans. He's writing this letter to the Colossians. In back chapter 1, verse 2, he says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. The reason for this had to do with the Colossian heresy. He centered in Colossae specifically was this startup false teaching, and it was quickly on the rise. And that's why Epaphras went to Rome in the first place, to get 
help from Paul. And Paul writes this letter to the Colossians in response. But look, he knows, you know, this heresy is going to eventually make its way to Laodicea. He cares about them too. He struggled on their behalf. Like he said back in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all who have not seen my face. He's concerned for all these Christians in this area, this little valley, even though he's never met them. But that's why he's sending his greetings. He's, he's greeting also the people in Laodicea because he, he cares about them too. And this is also why he greets, verse 15, Nympha and the church that is in her house. We know nothing of Nympha. Being named alone, we can assume she was single or likely a widow. Also, safe assumption, she was wealthy. The church was meeting in her house, had to have means to do that back then. You know, before the era of church buildings, all churches met in homes. All the first churches met in homes. Gaius hosted the Corinthian church. Mary hosted the Jerusalem church. Lydia hosted the Philippian church. Philemon hosted the Colossian church. There are all these people that served with the gift of hospitality, and they provided an environment that facilitated the work of the ministry. And God still uses such people. They just provide for the financial, the material needs of the church. And praise God for them. Praise God for their contribution to kingdom work. You could add Nympha to that list. The fact that she's listed separately, though, from the brethren Laodicea, probably means she hosted the church of Hierapolis. That was just mentioned back in verse 13. But here's the point. You know, though Colossae was his main audience, Paul is showing he cares about all of these believers. He didn't feel the need to write to these other churches directly. But everything he said in this letter matters, and it's meant for them as well. And Paul aims to coach them in the faith too. And that's why he's greeting these other churches. Because like a good coach, he wants to endear himself to them. He wants to show them he genuinely cares for them because that way they will receive his instruction. You know, to endear literally means to make dear. You're, you're inviting the love of other people for yourself. How do you do that, though? Well, uh, by showing others you love them first. And Paul does that. Paul does that by his writing. He does that by his praying. Again, he's not even met these people, but he's been praying diligently for them. He cares for them. He wants them to know it because like a wise coach, he knows that the team will only listen to him when he has their respect, their admiration, and even their love. And pastors today need to likewise take care to endear themselves to their people. And they do that by being the ones to first show you know, genuine, sacrificial, Christ-like love for their people. The coach endears. The coach needs to endear. Well, secondly, the coach educates in verse 16. We see Paul, the, the good coach, and right till the very end, he's, he's educating. Verse 16, he says, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, he says, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now, look, the Apostle Paul is not the owner of the church. Jesus is the owner of the church. He purchased it with his own blood. But owners typically employ a coaching staff to run the, the day-to-day operations of the team. 
Coaches themselves are men under authority. They can be hired and fired. But at the same time, coaches are entrusted with a large measure of the owner's authority to direct the team to call the shots. And so it goes for the apostles. The apostles really were like all these little head coaches put in place by the Lord to help get the church off the ground. And the Lord Jesus entrusted a a sizable measure of his authority to them over the churches. And this authority largely included their writings, which were meant to be received as the authoritative instruction for the church. The Apostle Paul, for example, he knew this. He knew he was writing as a spokesman for the Lord. That's why the Lord called him. And he knew much of his mission was just to pass on the body of truth the Lord revealed to him for the building up of the church. And so like a good coach, he needed to educate the team on the fundamentals of the game. And that's an important function of coaching. He's showing the team how to play the game. He's teaching them all the rules and the regulations. He's showing them what matters most, how to complete the objective. And when you think about it, this is really what the letter of Colossians has been all about. Paul has just been educating this young church on the fundamentals of the faith. He's just trying to build them up in the basic knowledge of Christ. Since we're running with the sports theme, it's kind of like the, the story of Vince Lombardi. He's the famous Green Bay, coach, uh, Green Bay Packers head coach. And back in 1961, they came within minutes of winning the championship game. It's before Super Bowls, just the championship. But they lost. The following season, at training camp, all the players came back, and they were hungry to learn, to grow. They wanted to fix their mistakes. They wanted to learn you know, the advanced techniques that they would never lose in the big game again. But their coach, Lombardi, had a different idea. And so at the beginning of training camp, he assembled all the players together. He had a football in his right hand, and he said, Gentlemen, this is a football. And he proceeded to reteach all these professional athletes just the very basic fundamentals of the game. They got no advanced techniques. He just taught them, again, the basics of football. That team went on, by the way, that next season to win the championship game 37-0. to Well, in Colossians, it's like Paul, the coach, he's telling the church, this is Christ. This is Jesus. He knows that just the solid fundamental knowledge of Christ and his gospel, that's sufficient to build them up and to protect them from false teaching. And because of the authority entrusted to him as an apostle and because of the importance of these fundamentals, that's why he wants this letter, this education to be read among other churches. And so in verse 16, he's telling them to send this letter elsewhere. Now, I want us to think on this verse a little bit more because it actually has huge implications for the doctrine of Scripture. He says, first, you know, when this letter is read among you. First and foremost, he's expecting this letter to be read among the Colossian church. Just like Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, you know, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Especially back then, they did not have personal copies of the Bible, so The public reading of scripture was essential. That's your only chance to hear the word of God read, unless you had it memorized. But the public reading of scripture now was to incorporate the new writings of the apostles, no longer just the Old Testament. They were reading 
the writings of the apostles. He says next, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. Now understand the implications here. This letter was not addressed to the Laodiceans. This was specific to the Colossian church, and it dealt with issues specific to the Colossian church, the Colossian heresy. Nevertheless, Paul believed that the truth herein was weighty enough and significant enough to be a benefit to other churches. He knew from the get-go this could be applied in every circumstance. And this is a testament to the universal application of Scripture. But he goes a step further. He says, And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Here we learn another letter was sent out at the same time. We'll talk about that letter in a second, but again, just think about the implications. This was another apostolic letter, and it was intended to be shared. And clearly, even though Paul wrote to specific situations, he fully intended his letters to have a wider circulation. He intended them to carry the authority that had been given to him as an apostle. This explains many other verses, like, for example, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where Paul says, And for this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. You may think, like, how do you have the audacity to say that your words are the word of God, but it it comes from this apostolic commission? 1 Corinthians 14.37, he says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. These things he writes are the Lord's commandment. Peter says the same, 2 Peter 3, 1 through 2. He says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. This is a clear testimony of the New Testament that the commandments of the Lord were spoken by the apostles. These men were chosen to be the channels of of new revelation corresponding to a new covenant. That's what the New Testament means, by the way, just new covenant. Peter goes on to say in that same chapter, verse 15, he says, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Did you notice, Peter there just included Paul's letters in the same category as Scripture. There was this immediate recognition that the category of Scripture, the Old Testament, was being expanded now to include the writings of these apostles. This is why these letters in the New Testament, even though they're addressed to specific churches, they went on to carry weight for all the churches. Here in Colossians 4.16, we have even more support for that fact. This letter to the Colossians is to be read among the Laodiceans. And the letter from Laodicea is to be read among the Colossians. 
you know, these instructions from the coach, they're meant to be applied by, by every local team. And this is why we, we still read them today. We still learn from them today. Now, real quick, you're probably wondering what this letter from Laodicea is. We don't know for sure, but the strands of evidence we have point to this as being what we call Ephesians. This is the letter we call Ephesians. You see how Paul doesn't call this a letter to the Laodiceans. It's just a letter coming from Laodicea. And most actually believe that the letter of Ephesians was intended as a circular letter first, which means it was meant to be spread around all the churches of Asia Minor. In fact, the oldest manuscripts of Ephesians don't contain a reference to Ephesus. This makes sense. When you study Ephesians, you realize, you know, he has, there's no specific greeting in Ephesians. He doesn't call out anybody by name. There's, there's nothing really specific in it. And even the content, it's not dealing with anything really specific. The content is extremely rich and deep, but it's general and broad in its presentation of God's will in Christ. It's also highly unlikely that this letter from the Laodiceans is some like, long-lost letter Paul wrote to Laodicea. Because just think, if Paul wrote the Laodiceans their own letter, he wouldn't be telling the Colossians to greet the Laodiceans. He would have just greeted them himself in his own letter. That this letter is, in fact, Ephesians also fits the surrounding circumstances because, remember, we know that Paul wrote Colossians and Ephesians at the same time from jail in Rome. We also know he sent both of these letters with Tychicus at the same time. They're going to the same region in Asia Minor. So here's pretty much the the best reconstruction we have from from what we do know. It seems that Paul wrote Ephesians as this, this broader circular letter for all the churches of Asia Minor. He sent it with Tychicus, along with Colossians and Philemon. Tychicus would have arrived at Ephesus first. It's on the coast. He would have given them Ephesians, and they would have made a copy of it. Then he would make his way inland to the Lycus Valley, and geographically, he arrives first at Laodicea. He gives them, too, a copy of Ephesians and tells them, eventually, send your copy to the Colossians, since they're so close. Tychicus, meanwhile, would have moved on to Colossae to deliver them two letters of their very own, Colossians and Philemon. Evidently, Paul did not believe the broad truths of Ephesians were adequate to address the specific false teaching in Colossae. And that's where these two letters differ. They're extremely parallel letters, but the main difference is all the teaching on the Colossian heresy. Colossians needed their own letter, and so that's what they got. Overall, though, we're learning that, you know, whatever the original circumstances were, you know, the writings of the apostles, they contained inspired, profitable truth for all the churches. They were meant to be shared, and they were. This is true across geography. It's true across history. And here we are today. We are, we are very far removed from the original setting and circumstances of, of the New Testament letters But still, God ensured that they contained all the truth the church today needs for life and godliness. He used head coaches like Paul to to educate the church in every place and every age. What was good for the Colossians was good for the Laodiceans. What was good for the Laodiceans was good for the Colossians. Both are good for us. Because the Lord really did commission the apostles to be the coaches of the church. He gave them the authority to educate, 
and instruct and build up the church with their writings, and the writings which we still learn from today. So we can be thankful the coach educates. Thirdly here, the coach encourages. The coach encourages, now in verse 17. He says, the second to last verse, he says, Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Now, at first glance, this verse seems totally random. It's a standalone verse, has no context. It's addressed to this figure we've never heard of before, Archippus. But even then, this verse is not even addressed to Archippus. It's addressed to the church. The whole church is supposed to say something to this guy, Archippus. Like, what is going on here? Well, thankfully, the book of Philemon fills us in on on a little of the background here. Philemon, that letter, was sent with Colossians at the same time to the same church. Philemon was a prominent member there. And listen to how Philemon starts. Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So note, when Paul writes Philemon, he doesn't just address Philemon, but also Aphia and Archippus. And we can't be 100% certain, but it seems like this is just Philemon's family. Aphia, probably his wife, Archippus, probably their son. We know for sure Archippus, he's a key member because he's called a fellow soldier. It's not just a random guy. The fact that Archippus is called out by name at the end of Colossians, the beginning of Philemon, shows he played a prominent role in the Colossian church. What kind of role did he play? Well, Philemon hosted the church in his house, but we get no impression that Philemon was the pastor of the church. Epaphras really was the pastor of the church, but he's now in Rome with Paul. So when Epaphras left, who took over oversight of the Colossian church? Well, it seems like the best bet is this guy, Archippus. It seems like Archippus is like the interim pastor of the Colossian church while Epaphras is gone. He might be a young man, but he had proven himself faithful as a fellow soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul uses that term for key servants in the gospel. Use it of Epaphroditus. Use it of Timothy. And speaking of Timothy, Paul's message for for, uh, Archippus here, it's very similar to his message for Timothy, another young type of pastor. Now, Archippus is being encouraged to take heed the ministry he had received in the Lord and fulfill it. Paul told Timothy the same thing in 2 Timothy. Timothy had been commissioned to minister the gospel, and 2 Timothy 4, 5, Paul tells him, fulfill your ministry. Most likely, he's telling Archippus the same thing because he's in the same role. He's pastoring this church. Fulfill your ministry. Archippus was a man in ministry. He's been called to, to fully carry it out, to fulfill it. It appeared that, like young Timothy, Archippus was timid. He was prone to fear. But he needed to be strong and courageous. He needed to discharge his ministry despite opposition, to not be ashamed of the gospel. Timothy needed that encouragement, and evidently so did Archippus, as do all young ministers. And likely, 
That's why Paul doesn't address this verse to Archippus, but to the congregation. And Archippus already knows he needs to be faithful to fulfill his ministry. But if he really is like Timothy, that means he's young, he's timid, he's afraid. And so Paul really wants the congregation to do their part and encourage him. This verse is directed to the congregation. They are to, with one voice, support him. They need to get behind him, give him the strength he needs to lead with conviction and face opposition. You know, in effect, this is Paul telling the church to get behind their assistant coach, to listen to him, and to support him in the work the Lord has given him to do. You know, there's been some sports teams who lost because they lost all confidence in their coach, and they just wouldn't listen to him anymore. And that leads to disaster, because you really need the coach to make everyone work together and sacrifice, and it's just disaster when they they lose faith in their coach. And for teams to succeed, they've got to get behind their coach. They have to support him, work with him. They have to believe in him. The same goes for churches. They need to come under the leadership of their elders and pastors. Hebrews 13, 17 says, you know, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. you know, churches need to willingly come under the leadership of their pastors. That happens, though, when a relationship of trust is built. You know, pastors aren't are better than anyone else. They're not more special members of the church. They're just differently gifted. They're, they're likewise just sinners saved by grace. But as they prove themselves gifted, qualified, and faithful, and as they display a heart to lead the church in its mission, you know, those on the team should just happily follow them and lend them their support. That support looks like prayer, looks like accountability, looks like encouragement, and that's what Paul wants the church to do for Archippus. Just keep him going. Uh, prop him up. Paul, as the master head coach, knew just when and how to encourage the team to this end. And churches today need to likewise consider how to encourage their pastors. Especially as the days grow evil and pastors get targeted. Congregations need to all the more pray for their pastors and, and just embolden them to lead with conviction and to fulfill their ministry. Well, it's time to finish. Here's the last point, the last verse. The coach exits. The coach exits, verse 18, to finish. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Finishes off with three separate statements. He says, first, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. That means while he was imprisoned, he dictated this letter and his secretary wrote it down. The, the fancy word for this is amanuensis. And Paul is known to have used a secretary or amanuensis for several of his letters. 1 Corinthians, Galatians, 2 Thessalonians, Philemon. But he was always sure to sign it with his own hand at the end for the same reason we sign important documents. He was showing that even though he didn't hold the pen, every word here came from him and came with his authority as an apostle. Secondly, he says, remember my imprisonment. This is quite the paradox of, of power. Here's Paul, the, the great apostle. He's commanding the churches. Meanwhile, he's, he's a prisoner in chains in Rome. 
But this is simply the cost of preaching Christ in a hostile world. You know, some of his opponents suggested that the fact that he was in prison showed God's disapproval of him. But to the contrary, and his chains were the proof of his willingness to follow Christ and preach Christ no matter the cost. In fact, when you think about it, Paul's imprisonment contributed to the spread of the gospel more than his freedom because it enabled him to write these letters, which are now part of the New Testament. The church needed, though, to remember Paul and pray for him. And still today, we are, in a sense, remembering his imprisonment and remembering how the Lord can turn even evil for good and for his kingdom. And finally, now Paul states, grace be with you. This was a standard greeting, standard farewell used by Paul. Kind of like aloha, could be used to say hello or goodbye. Grace be with you. Here he, he's wishing God's grace upon them. And, and given the circumstances, it, it kind of takes special meaning. I mean, he just told them to remember his imprisonment. But, but in that, they're getting a vivid picture of the cost of following Christ. I mean, like, here's Paul. He's the head coach. But he's in prison. So, like, how do you think they're going to treat you? And look how they treated the owner of the team, Christ. They crucified him. But the same cost of, of picking up your cross is required of all who would follow Jesus. And suffice it to say, though, you're going to need God's grace to do this, right? Grace had better be with you. Otherwise, who's, who's going to endure this, this cost of following Jesus? On their own, no one's going to endure. But by God's grace, being with you in Christ through the Spirit, those who truly know Christ by faith, will endure. And with that, this letter ends. And it may finish with the signature by Paul uh, as the head coach. He's kind of putting a stamp of approval on everything he has written. But as we look back on all that we've learned, make no mistake that, that Christ gets the glory here. And again, pound for pound, just by a number of verses This is the most Christ-saturated epistle. He's in almost every verse. And Paul knew just chiefly that's what this young church needed. They just needed to come to the full knowledge of Christ and his gospel, and they would endure. And just thinking back briefly, we've learned in Colossians that, that God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ. That by Christ's death and resurrection, our sins have been paid for, our debt been nailed to the cross. Satan has been conquered. And now by faith, we've been raised up to new life in Christ. And we're called to to fullness of life in Christ. Remember back in chapter one, this Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We learned how all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. And it's God's will that now we, we come to bear his image And so we're called to die to the elementary principles of the world and instead seek things above where Christ is. We're told that Christ now is our life. And to live for him, this same Christ strengthens us with all power. He will give us the grace we need to to live this life for him. But we must forever follow him and be faithful. And so we're told, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. 
Let the name of Christ be ever before you. We're told it's the Lord Christ whom you serve. And don't ever forget that. We serve Christ. All this and more we've learned in Colossians. It's proven to be, even though this is one of the most specific letters of the Bible, we've seen it proven as just timeless instruction that the church still needs today for its mission. Because we're all on the same team. We're here to serve Christ. We're here to know Christ, follow him, become like him. And so may we resolve to therefore just continually, like the Colossians, just be filled up in the knowledge of Christ, that we may be found useful and pleasing to him until he returns. That's our prayer. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, we pray you sanctify us in this resolve to be like Christ. And for that, we must be filled up with the knowledge of Christ. Lord, you've given us your word, the word of Christ, for this reason. It's not just a chore. It's not a ritual. These are the words of life, the bread of life by which we are sustained, we're nourished, we grow, we bear fruit. Lord, help us to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us, that we might be born into his image again and, uh, and bear that image evermore. Help us to hold on to these timeless truths, not to be done with them. Although our exposition is finished, may we carry forward the lessons we've learned. The church today still needs this truth. The mission continues. The team is is going forward. We thank you for your word, but now it's our turn to take these notes and live them out. And so be with us, convict us, and build us up in, in Christ's name and for his glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.